have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Now go to chapter 8 and verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the three hundred men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Exhausted, or as other translations render it, faint. Faint, yet pursuing. That's going to be the theme of next month's month of prayer and giving for the churches that um, we are connected to through the Grace Baptist Partnership. I've been tasked with preparing, as with last year, a, um, a booklet of uh, 30 to, or 31 different profiles. I believe there's probably 29 profile, church profiles and then um, um, there's an introduction and a conclusion, something like that. Might be 30. Um, in any case, well underway um, getting that together. Something that oftentimes can be forgotten when we gather in relatively small numbers on a Sunday evening is the way God in His providence, according to the mysteries of His will, has used our fellowship to start a number of other churches across England, Scotland, as well as various parts in Europe. Um, through the prayers of this congregation and um, the sacrificial proactivity to send people over the years, oftentimes sending out permanently our, our, our best and most committed um, uh, brothers and sisters, faithful and zealous in evangelism and service to serve elsewhere. The gospel is not only continuing here in this place, but the kingdom of God is multiplying in other places. And of course, through seasons such as the one we've been to, where we very much have to put our head down and get on with ministry at a local level, we can perhaps, uh, with that as well as the ever-increasing um, uh, work that's going on all around, um, feel perhaps in some ways uh, more distant than perhaps we used to from some of those congregations. But that's not unnatural. In the same way children grow up and um, uh, move out and are quite literally more distant. And there is a, a sense of um, um, uh, you know, independency and autonomy that develops. So too when we plant churches, um, they go and appoint their own leaders. And they do their own uh, work and their own ministry in their own communities. And all of that is important and great and truly beautiful to behold. That's why each year for several years we have set aside a month to remind ourselves of the work that God is doing and to offer up prayers and to give to the work that He's doing across um, uh, the nation and in parts of Europe. So uh, this, this year, the, um, uh, the number of places is more than a month could contain. And so we decided that we would have a week of prayer and giving for Europe at some point maybe in the summer. 
But for now, we'll focus on the United Kingdom and what God's doing here. Again, the, the theme is faint but pursuing. Why, why, why would we front something about being faint? Is, isn't that sort of a, a bad news? Isn't that kind of negative for, you know, to, at the offset to have that sort of um, uh, word that sums up weariness and exhaustion? Well, it's from this particular passage of Scripture. And the emphasis is not so much on the faint, but on the pursuing. Faint, but getting on with what God has called us to do. Weary, but continuing to wage spiritual warfare in the communities in which God has placed us. Exhausted, but persevering by the strength that God supplies according to the power of the Holy Spirit. That's good news. That, that you can even tonight at the end of, of one long week and the beginning of another week and doubtless feeling all of that, can yourself perhaps faint and weary and exhausted as an individual, at an individual level, nonetheless know the power of God enabling you to pursue His onward and upward calling in Christ Jesus. That's good news. And we, we get that news, yes, from a historical narrative. But it is one that, that carries with it spiritual principles that, that transcend mere narrative of ancient history into the normatives of the Christian life. I hope that we'll see that more clearly uh, this, this evening. But reflect on Gideon for a moment. The name Gideon means... Hewer. Oh, hewer is not particularly a, a word that we would tend to use, at least in our urban context. I think even in rural context, we might have other terminology. Um, perhaps think of a logger. Someone who goes out into the forest and hews down trees. That's literally what it's communicating. Um, it, it, it means hewer or one who cuts down. It carries with it connotations of strength. One who fells great trees. One who strikes down enemies. One who topples mighty opponents. And that, that might be the, the, the man with with you know, forearms as thick as most of our thighs going out with the, the saw and um, uh, felling trees in some sort of distant northern forest. Or it, it could be a soldier in war, in combat, where he's in the thick of the fight, but it's like there's a circle all around him because uh, no, one, no one's coming near this guy and standing. When the angel of the Lord greets a man by this name, in the text that we read a moment ago, Gideon, he says words that are appropriate for a man with a name of such imagery. It sounds like a really strong guy, and indeed a powerful man, a strong man, a valiant man, a hero. And so the words seem appropriate enough at first glance. The angel of the Lord greets him by saying, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. 
But nothing else about the greeting makes much sense. Relationally, Gideon was the youngest in his father's family. Not exactly the one you would go to and bestow such honor to start with. Tribally, his father's family was the weakest in a tribe that was already weak by being not a full tribe, but a half tribe. So the youngest in a family that is the weakest in a half tribe, that is the tribe of Manasseh. Occupationally, he was not in fact a valiant warrior. Would you believe it? But he was an oppressed farmer. Positionally, he was not preparing for battle. He was not fighting a battle. Nor was he returning victoriously from battle. You would think that, Greetings, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. A word spoken to, to uh, a man who's um, uh, riding home from, from war, his face covered in a mixture of grime and gore from the battlefield. But... Strong, courageous. This man is threshing wheat. And he's not only threshing wheat, he's doing so quite abnormally in a wine press. Do we understand what threshing wheat is? And that's, that's normally there is a threshing floor. So once the wheat has been cut down, you have to separate the, uh, the kernels of wheat from the chaff and everything else. And so you have a smooth surface, normally a circular surface, smooth surface, at, um, at which you go about the, the process of threshing the wheat, of, of separating the wheat kernels from um, everything else connected to the plant. That's not something you do in a wine press. Would you believe it, but you press wine in a wine press. That, that is, you, you know, you have, you have grapes that you, uh, you well, that, that's how they did it. I don't know that that's how they make it these days, but you, 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 you get in there with your feet and you hold on to something above and you trod down and the, um, the, the liquid from the grapes is channeled into various containers, receptacles, and then left um, in various ways to, to ferment and um, uh, to produce wine. Here is a man who is threshing wheat in a wine press. And he's, it says specifically he's doing this very odd thing to hide from their Midianite oppressors. You see, the people of God had rebelled continuously and habitually against the Lord and His commands. They said, we will serve the Lord and His voice we will obey. That's the very end of Joshua, the book immediately preceding this. They made a covenant with God. We will serve the Lord and His voice we will obey. You literally have to turn one page in your Bible. And it says that they did not serve the Lord, but they worshipped the Baals. They started worshiping other gods. They listened to other prophets and prophetesses and various people seeking to lure them astray into pagan belief. And they, they repeatedly faced the consequences. Judges is filled with this cycle of their 
They're walking in right relationship with God. They're serving Him and they're listening to Him and then they're not. Then they're judged by enemies and then by, by friends. People who judge them and who judge their enemies and who lead them out of these miniature exiles, miniature slaveries. It's kind of like mini exoduses that happen throughout Judges. Well, all of this is going on and now they're in the hands of the Midianites. The Midianites are beating down on them, bearing down on them. Apparently you can't even you know, farm in peace. And so he's hunkering down in a wine press, bashing the wheat kernels out so that no one sees him doing what one would expect farmers to normally do. Religiously, he was from a family of idol worshipers. We later read of him actually tearing down the idols of his family. Though they had some concept of the Lord God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, they did have other gods besides Him. And they did make for themselves graven images. Spiritually, Gideon himself, even you might have picked up on that as he's interacting with the angel of the Lord, this, this man is disposed to God-blaming to doubt, to fear, to self-preservation that could hinder him from war if he felt weak, which he did, and self-reliance that could hinder him from appropriately directed worship if he felt strong. So you really can't win with this guy. Well, you know, the angel of the Lord is, is greeting him and trying to encourage him. And what is Gideon saying? I don't believe it. I don't buy it. The Lord calls him by, by this identity that he has before the Lord. The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. And what does, what does Gideon respond to the Lord is with you? No. The Lord has abandoned us. How does he respond to valiant warrior? I mean, not only that, as the conversation goes on, not just a valiant warrior, selected, strengthened, and sent by God to deliver His people. How does He respond? How, how can I? My family is the weakest. I am the youngest. Our tribe is, is, is insignificant in the grand scheme of the tribes of Israel. And what's the answer to all of this? This is a man who is utterly unimpressive. He is the opposite of a valiant warrior in the immediate context in which he is approached. Relationally the youngest. Tribally the weakest. Occupationally oppressed farmer. Positionally threshing wheat in a wine press to hide. Spiritually God-blaming. Plagued with doubt, fear, self-preservation, and self-reliance. Religiously, a family of idol worshipers. And yet the Lord speaks to him at the very beginning. The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. And no protestations from Gideon throughout their ensuing dialogue 
convinces the Lord otherwise. Because when the Lord says, I'm with you, He means it. But I will be with you. The Lord repeats to Gideon when Gideon withdraws into this, this doubt. And it was the presence and the power of the Lord, the promise of the presence and the power of the Lord, preceding its actual realization that would change everything. Gideon is still, as the story develops, prone to questioning, to doubt. And some people might, might think that this is... And in fact, I've heard Christians talk about fleece laying. Have you heard about that? Fleece laying? Or someone said, okay, I'm glad. I'm very glad. Some people say, oh, I think I'm just going to lay a fleece. And it's, like, it's this you know, spiritualized language of, you know, ah, I'm seeking the Lord's guidance for my life. I think I'm going to put God to the test. I think I'm going to... You know, ask Him for a sign. And so they do a little something. They have a conversation with God about it. And Lord, if this is what You want me to do... And it might be something that's very obvious. But they lay a fleece. Not literally, I hope. That would just be weird. But Gideon does, literally. And it, it, it's just this bizarre sequence where he, he, he takes a, a fleece of... Yes, a, sheep and lays it out and plays games with God kind of about whether it's going to have dew on it and the ground around it be dry or whether it's going to be dry and the ground around it have dew on it. And he just keeps doing this because he's not believing it. And you know, the most remarkable thing about that is that God actually responds to his fleece laying in patience, kindness, understanding. Uh, sort of understanding the type of things we've been talking about in the mornings from 2 Corinthians. Our weakness. God said, I will be with you. And He is determined that Gideon know it. So once, once Gideon's self-preservation is sorted out, God has to sort out His self-reliance. A call goes out for troops. And there's this great number that gather. It's fairly substantial. It, it might even do the job of rising up against the Midianites. But the Lord says in verse... Um, 2 of chapter 7, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Too many. That is, your army is too big. What? Your army is too strong. How, how, how is that possible? How, how is it possible really to have an army that's too big, too strong? It's a dangerous world. You know, be, be prepared. Have every eventuality covered. But no, um, your army is too strong. It's too big. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So, God put certain things in place. And 
we're told that 22,000 people are cut down. Only 10,000 are left. Now, 33,000 by modern military standards is probably not vast, but 10,000 remain. And I mean, this is a this is a story where as you read Judges, you see numbers and, and, and the kings, you see numbers in the hundreds of thousands. Minuscule, really. 10,000. Gideon probably breathes a sigh of relief. Well, at least we have this many. But the Lord says in verse 4, the people are still too many. And He keeps whittling them down through various things until there are only Gideon and 300 men. 300 people. And then they're ready. Why? Because all throughout, God is, is, is answering Gideon's problem, yes, self-preservation, but also of self-reliance. It's not in your strength. It's not in your power. Not by your hand that you will be saved or will save yourself. God uses human instruments, but He uses human instruments in weakness. Yes, in fear and in trembling and in frailty and in foolishness. And of course, if you know much uh, you know, history or literature at all, our world is filled with stories like this where small people, weak people, frail people overcome insurmountable odds. And that's why we know those stories. That's why we remember those stories. That's why we tell those stories. Because that's not the way things work. 300 people overcoming a vast army? But imagine if you had the 33,000 and they had won. It's less, it's, it's, it's less significant. I mean, would we be talking? Probably not. Would we have this story recorded? It's less remarkable. But God has shown His power in weakness. God has shown His power in human frailty and foolishness. Using a weak man who was prone to self-preservation on one hand and self-reliance on the other. And God chose that person and said He was going to cut things back and cut things down until this man saw that it was the Lord who saves. And Gideon would know that the Lord was with him. The suppressed farmer bashing out the wheat kernels in the wine press would know valiant war within him because God was with him. Changed everything. So we get to chapter uh, 8. Gideon and his men through this amazing strategic surprise attack that actually involved very little aggression at the, the start of it, have seen the Midianites and their allies in a panic in their camp at night turn on each other. And they're striking each other down. And then as dawn begins to break, they see, oh, wait, we, we're... 
We're well and truly defeated. We're well and truly lost. They run. They flee. Their kings are captured bit by bit. They're defeated. And yet, the battle is not over. Thus we get to verse 4. Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him faint yet pursuing. And, and we, we see some reasons for why they were faint. They were faint on the one hand because they were, they were exhausted by the fight. They'd been fighting continuously without stopping. That takes it out of you. 300 men led by one man who didn't have a particular disposition for war. And they have put to flight this great army. They're exhausted by the fight, but that, well, that makes sense. There's something else that it does make sense and it doesn't. While they're fighting, while they're engaged in this, this conflict, in this battle, in this warfare, they find themselves not only exhausted by the fight, but exasperated by their friends. So they're winning this great victory and you would think that they would get applause. You would think that, they, that people would, would come out in the day and they'd see, wow, you and this small army have liberated us from our oppressors. That they would be celebrated. But instead they get an earful. Why didn't you let us come and help you? The men of Ephraim say to him in verse 1 of chapter 8, What is this you've done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. You didn't ask us for help. Why? Oh, that was so selfish. That you, you, we, we, we could have done great things together. We could have really made progress if you'd only talked with us, if you'd only asked us to come and, and join you in this fight. You see how that could be ex exasperating? You know, you've just won a great victory, and that's the point. But someone else wants to make something else the point. That really doesn't matter. We won without you. You should be thanking us that you didn't have to put yourselves at risk. That you didn't have to expend all of that effort. Exasperated by friends. But then after this, this episode, they keep proceeding. They keep giving pursuit. And they come to Succoth. And at Succoth, they ask the men of the city there, please give us loaves of bread Gideon asked, please give the bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And it's the reverse. The Ephraimites were like, why didn't you ask us for help? We would have helped you. And the people of Succoth are like, you know, have you finished the job yet? Why should we feed you if you've not finished the job? So, you can't win. You don't ask for help, they don't like you. You do ask for help, they don't like you. They oppose you. It's exasperating. And you're already expending all of this strength and all of this energy on the fight. And then you have to deal with lousy friends 
who want to be there when you don't need them there and who don't want to be there when you do need them there. Who want to help in ways you didn't need help, but don't want to help in the ways you do need help. Faint yet pursuing. How? How could they continue in the fight? How could they continue even with earfuls from their friends? Because they were expectant because of the faithfulness of God. All throughout this story, God repeatedly reminds them, I am with you. I will be with you. I will deliver you. He tells them, get up and attack. Get up. He said at the beginning of this battle, for the Lord has handed them over to you. God in His power has already promised them victory. He has already promised triumph. And so they are to pursue even when they're faint. Now, I hope that you are spiritually mature and discerning enough to connect some of the dots from Gideon's conflict with ancient Midian and the spiritual warfare that we fight, which is not of this world. It is not against flesh and blood that we wrestle. And it is, it is it's not even a fight that has anything to do with the kingdoms of this world. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would take up weapons and fight. Our battle is different. Our weapons are different. We fight not with swords and spears, but our weapon is the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer because we pray in the Spirit, thus we are praying according to the will of God, the words of God back to Him so that He empowers us for gospel proclamation and kingdom growth in a dark world. How can we endure? As we plant churches, as we go out and do evangelism locally and ministry locally, as we, as we go further afield across this nation and across our continent, we, we may find uh, ourselves at times exhausted by the fight. Why, why should We have needs here, don't we? We will always have needs here. And we should attend to our needs here. But there's priorities. And our priority has been, is, and will be God helping us the proclamation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So are there, are there things that we could be better at? Doubtless. Are there things that we could... could repair or fix. Absolutely. And we have done and we will do. Are there improvements to be made? Yes, 100%. And we will. We need to work together at those things. But we have a fight. And it's not just local. It is national and it is global. And we are committed to go through the doors that God opens until He says no. Why? He says He's given it to us. He says He has given us victory in Jesus Christ. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He, he promised, you will be my witnesses 
to the, to the ends of the earth. And you know what he also promised? I will be with you to the end of the age. So the battle has changed. The battlefield is different. The weapons of our warfare are different. The nature of the kingdom for which we fight is different. Much is different, but much is unchanged. God still has a plan to take weak people in their weakness and use them mightily for His glory. And He does so with the word of encouragement, I will be with you. And the promise that we will get it done. We have enemies. We have a fight that exhausts us. We have friends that exasperate us. I don't even think I have to rehearse the list of ways in which we might be exasperated. The little things that get said. The little things that get done. The distractions. The, the stuff that burdens us and that frustrates us. And there's people that we love and they say unloving things. Or they do unloving things. Or, or there, there, there's people that we have felt loved by in some seasons, but we suddenly find ourselves feeling less loved by them in the way. There are times that we go out and, and do gospel work. I remember when um, uh, I shared this with our, our men's group when we uh, announced the, the news from uh, Grace Baptist Partnership of a new church planting opportunity in Wimbledon where a church had vacated its premises or will be vacating its premises and um, that building's just going to sit empty right in the middle of Wimbledon. You get out of the station, you turn left, you walk two minutes and it's right on the main road. Right next to the shops, the high road. All of that. And when that was announced, guess who, guess who spoke the loudest against it? It was Pastor's. Other pastors. And guess where they were from? Not the area, actually. Not even from London, some of them. Some of them from random cities up north. Oh, I find this very concerning. Oh, I know. There's a good church there already. Oh, there's another church. with. The, haven't they, have, they, have they spoken with these churches? Have they interacted with these churches? The most hilarious thing is, of course, um, uh, none of these churches are actually in that area. There are multiple churches that were in that area, but now constitute a Hindu temple and a Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall. Um, and, uh, and, and whatever this one would have become. And the other churches, whatever stripe of evangelicalism they are, be they Anglican or Baptist or evangelical or whatever you want to call it, all of them, having been approached, their pastors have expressed that this is such a delight and an answer to prayer, and if there's anything we can do to encourage and help, please let us know, and, and, and have been nothing but encouraging and supportive. A bunch of random people opining about stuff they didn't understand or know. Some, why don't you call us for help? Or why don't you call them for help? Others, well, I'm afraid we can't help you because we don't really see exactly what's, what, what's going to happen there. Is there a team? Is there leadership in place? Is there a... Some things never change. Exhausted by the fight. Exasperated 
my friends, but expectant because of the faithfulness of a loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God who says, I will be with you. I will deliver you. Get up and do my mission. May the Lord help us and encourage us in the weeks ahead when we begin to receive the daily updates. Um, uh, please, they'll, they'll look, they won't be identical to this obviously, but they will have some substantial content and some items for prayer. can only encourage you as I, I share that out on social media and on the WhatsApp group and other places online particularly. Um, if you want to receive it in some other format, just let me know. Could I ask that you please... Pray daily, because we're not alone in this fight. There are others who find themselves exhausted and exasperated. But faint, we will pursue God helping us. Amen.